So what would you say, what would you say to, um, to a swimmer who was always complaining that their swimsuit was getting wet? What, what, what would you say? Or what would you say to a boxer who moaned about getting punched whenever he stepped in the ring? Okay? Or what would you say to a car mechanic who was always grumbling that his hands were getting covered in oil? Okay? Or what would you say to a school teacher who complained that she had to deal with children? Okay? Or a doctor who moaned about all the sick people that they had to, to visit? You'd probably tell them that they needed to reset their expectations, wouldn't you? Um, you know, that these things are the norm. This is, the, this is par for the course. This is what goes with the territory. This is what you should expect uh, as you perform the task that's been given to you, whether that's doctoring or mechanics or boxing or teaching or whatever it is. Chapters 10 and 11 of Revelation here describe, I think, what God's people should be doing and expecting, what should go with the territory during this period of the last days. And of course, if you've been with us in previous weeks, you'll, you'll understand by now that the last days, what is meant by the last days, is not just the kind of the, the final run-up to Jesus' return, but it's actually the whole period of time between the first and the second comings of the Lord Jesus. In other words, it's the period of history in which John was writing, as well as the period of history in which we are reading. And the message of these two chapters is that as we live and speak for Christ in these last days, because as we'll see, that's our task, we should expect suffering for Christ to be the norm, to go with the the territory. Um, Here is a lady called Sahar. Uh, Sahar comes from Iran. Um, She was thrown out of her home. She was ostracized by her family. She was denied access to her children simply because she told her husband that she'd become a follower of Jesus. Um, That decision also led to her being arrested and imprisoned for a while and then afterwards to need to flee the country for her own safety. Sahar now lives in Turkey. And and she is not alone. In fact, millions of of Christians across the world have similar stories to tell. And if you talk to any church historian, they will tell you that persecution of Christians has taken place in every generation of world history and right across all the countries of the world. And even in this country. You know, we we may not face the same issues that that Sahar has has faced. Although, if you convert to Christ from Islam, then you often are faced with being ostracised or worse. But many, many Christians have stories to tell of, of being ostracized or bullied or sidelined by, uh, you know, at school or at university or in, by work colleagues, members of your family, uh, friends, and so on. And chapters 10 and 11 here give us a reality check. They give us an expectation reset by showing us that it's normal. It's normal. So, so whilst many of us you know, here in Britain m- might be enjoying a period where there's been a bit of a lull in terms of outright opposition, what we are experiencing is not the norm. And it's not likely to last, therefore. Indeed, the indications are, most of us know this, don't we, that it's changing fast. Now, so far um, in in Revelation, we've we've been seeing three kind of 
recurring truths as we've gone through the book, haven't we? Uh, John, John is writing, of course, to various churches in Turkey who were struggling. They were struggling with, with persecution. They were struggling with compromise. They were struggling with false teaching. And he's writing to them to show them what's really going on in the world. So Revelation, if you like, is like drawing back the curtain on reality. And, and showing us that despite the way things seem, that in the midst of all the brokenness and the, and the chaos of the world, firstly, that God is sovereign, he's in control, that Christ is victorious, so the great battle in Revelation is not Armageddon in the future, it's Calvary in the past, and Christ has already won, such that, three, God's people are secure. And we've seen this right through the chapters, of course, haven't we? But we also saw it particularly last time, didn't we, in chapter 6 to 9, as we saw the kinds of things that we should expect to happen in the world throughout this period of time between Christ's two comings. We we saw, didn't we, that we ought to be realistic because these these last days are times when the world is under God's judgment and, and so experiencing signs of that judgment that are to urge people to repent and turn back to God. You know, you remember the seals being opened in chapter 6, the trumpets being blown in in chapters 8 and 9, which unleash various events of God's judgment on on humanity's rebellion. But that in the midst of that chaos, there in chapter 7, is the call to be reassured that God's people are safe and secure. But now we get a different picture. Now we're in a kind of, a bit of an interlude, I guess, between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. And I think the question that John raises for us in this sort of interlude period here is, what happens to God's people during these last days? You know, we've seen the kinds of things that will characterise the world during that period. But what about God's people? What are they going to be doing? What should they be expecting? That's the question, I think, that chapters 10 and 11 answer. And it's pretty straightforward. God's people are going to proclaim the gospel, but suffer for it. That's the headline. Um, But just before we dive in and and see that in these chapters, it might be helpful for us to bear in mind, I think, another key lesson about how to handle this book of Revelation, which will come in handy for us, especially in these two chapters. We've seen one lesson uh, uh, about this already, haven't we, which is that Revelation is not a chronological timetable of events. Okay, These events don't happen kind of one after the other, but rather it's a bit like watching a a tennis match on the TV or a a match of an inferior sport like football or rugby or something like that. Um, (laughs) in, In as much as we're being shown the same events but from multiple angles and and with action replays. So we we saw that last time, didn't we? But another thing to appreciate about this book is that it's written in a particular style, a particular genre uh, of literature, which requires some sensitivity, therefore, as we we interpret it. It's called apocalyptic literature. It was actually quite a popular style of writing in John's day. It used lots of symbols to help convey truth about God. So nobody thought that you should read apocalyptic material in a sort of literal or literalistic way. Now, it was understood that this kind of literature used symbolism in order to convey meaning. So so why is John using it here? I mean, why not just tell us straight? It would save a lot of hassle, wouldn't it? Save me quite a bit of hassle in the week. Um, (laughs) Why doesn't he just tell us straight? 
I think it's because he's having to explain heavenly realities to people who have never experienced them. I think that's the point. I mean, imagine, imagine if you had to explain how Maine's electricity works to a native in a remote jungle somewhere who has never seen anything that's powered by electricity. I mean, you, you couldn't even use words like bulb or, you know, or battery or, or cabling or wire or generator or any of those words, could you? Because they'd be totally meaningless to him. They'd be beyond his experience. You'd have to use symbolism, wouldn't you? You'd have to talk about the, the, the mains cabling in your house being like vines or creepers that go all around the hut or something. You'd have to talk about the light bulbs as being like little suns that you hang from the roof in your hut because those things that you're trying to explain would be things that they wouldn't even have a vocabulary for. But you wouldn't want them to think that you were literally going to hang a sun from the roof of their hut, would you? Or provide power to it by using vines or something like that. You'd hope that they would see uh, that you were explaining truth using symbolism. So that they'd understand things that you had seen but that they had not. Do, do, Do you see? And that's John's challenge here, isn't it? He has seen things that we have not But he needs to explain them to us, reveal them to us in language that we can understand. And so he uses symbolism. It's it's actually largely drawn from the Old Testament, uh, the, the symbolism, in order to describe things that he has been shown, but that we have not been shown ourselves, heavenly realities. So as we come to these chapters... Uh, we need to remember that we're not supposed to be reading them in a literal sense or a literalistic sense. But we're supposed to realise that he's using language symbolically. In other words, we're to read it bearing in mind the type or the genre of of writing, of literature that, that it is. So what is he saying then? Well, I think he wants to encourage us as God's people and show us what we should be doing and expecting during these last days, during these days of the seals and the trumpets, uh, if you like. So here's four things that I think we're shown across these two chapters. Uh, And the first one that we're shown, look, in chapter 10, is the confidence we have, the confidence we have. And his point here is pretty simple, um, I think. It's that God's plans will be accomplished because he's totally sovereign. He's, he's in complete control. Uh, you'll notice looking uh, in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 10. That John begins by telling us about a mighty angel. You see that? Um, and, and, and this angel is described in, in pretty spectacular uh, fashion. isn't he? He's got a face like the sun. He's got a voice like a lion. He's got legs like pillars of fire. As he kind of stands across the sea. And, and the land. So the description here is, is obviously of a very kind of mighty, powerful angel. Reminds us, doesn't it, of the strong angel in chapter 5 who was also holding a scroll, of course, as he asked who was worthy to open the scroll. You know, the scroll that represented God's purposes in history, both to judge and to save. So I think it's reasonable to assume that this is the same angel holding the same scroll. But what does the angel say this time? Well, firstly, he speaks about something hidden, doesn't he, in verse 4. Do you see? He talks about those seven thunders that John is about to write down the content of, but he's told not to. 
You see that, verse 4? And, and actually, we're, we're not explicitly told what these seven thunders were, were going to herald in. I think it's reasonable to assume they were another seven calamities of some kind, uh, another seven acts of judgment, uh, like the seven seals and the seven trumpets were. But notice that they're rescinded before they're written down, and we're not told why, which some people find quite frustrating, <laughs> of course. Um, the scholars, well, they come up with all kinds of various theories, as they want to do. Um, But it seems to me as though that's kind of the point. In other words, God has told us what he needs us to know, you know, about the present and and the future. And that's all we're getting. You know, clearly he could have told us more if he'd wanted us to know, but it seems like he didn't. Uh, So it's like, I think it's like Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, isn't it? The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. Uh, forever that that we may do the words of of his law so whilst verse four might leave us kind of intrigued it's actually what the angel says in verses six to seven which is the important thing for us to know because here he shows us something not hidden but something revealed end of verse six that there would be no more delay but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Now, we'll discover shortly that the seventh trumpet pictures the end of human history. And so what the angel is saying is that when that happens, then God's plan will be fulfilled. It will be accomplished. You know, what's, what's sometimes called the mystery in, in, the, uh, in the New Testament is simply the gospel plan. The gospel plan that people come to know God through Jesus Christ. And the angel here is saying, effectively, there's no way that that plan can be thwarted. God's plans for, for salvation and judgment, they will be accomplished. They will be fulfilled. You know, despite what we might think to the contrary, despite evidence of huge persecution against the church, despite the seeming chaos that we see in the world around us, yet God is totally in control, and so his plans will be accomplished. And there is no more delay, verse 6, in the sense that everything has been done that needs to be done. Yeah, the, pro- the cross, the resurrection, that, that they've accomplished everything that was needed. There's, there's no other saving event that needs to, to take place. All we're waiting for now is the final trumpet, the final whistle, if you like, to be blown on, on human history when Christ returns. But then look at verses 8 to 11 where as we await that final whistle on human history, John is given something to proclaim. Right? And we can see this from the fact that John is told to take the scroll from the angel. See that in verse 8? That scroll that contains the, the plans and purposes of God to both judge and to save. In other words, the, the gospel mystery that's now been revealed. He's told to take that and eat it. Okay, which might sound a bit of a weird uh, bit of imagery. Um, but it's also a, a piece of imagery pulled out from the prophet Ezekiel in, in the Old Testament, where he was told to do the same thing. And, and the meaning is the same too. To, to be told by God's messenger to eat the scroll is to be told to, to take in its message, yeah? to ingest it, to absorb it. And to notice as you do so, verse 9, that its message is kind of bittersweet. See that? It's, it's sweet, of course, because it's good news. Right? It's good news to those who respond to it. It's, it's message of life forever with God. 
through the victory of Christ on the cross. That's such sweet news, isn't it? But it's bittersweet in the sense that there are times of suffering for God's people as that message is proclaimed. You see, it's a message of victory, but it's victory through suffering, which makes it bittersweet. And friends, we know this, don't we? We know that you know, the message of Christ is such sweetness to us. But it's a message that's often tinged with pain, isn't it? When maybe some of those we love reject it, reject the message, it leaves a kind of heaviness, a bitterness in the stomach. But friends, as we take a step back from the chapter, can you see how it shows us again and again how God is in control? You know, even the actions of the angel himself, as he stands kind of over the land and the sea, even that uh, tells us of that, doesn't it? We're going to be introduced next time to the, uh, in the next section, to the the first beast who, who represents one of Satan's allies. We'll be told that he comes from the sea in chapter 13. But here we're told that one of God's angels stands over the sea. In other words, God hasn't lost the plot. You know, he's not gone AWOL. He's not abdicated his throne. He's not lost interest. He's not stopped caring. No, he's in charge. He's totally in control. And, and, and the best bit of all, there's absolutely no way that his plan of judgment and salvation through Christ can be thwarted. And, and as we're seeing, this truth is emphasised to us over and over again in Revelation, isn't it? Have you seen that? Of course, other books of the Bible teach it clearly too. But as the curtain is drawn back and reality is revealed to us here in this book, well, it's evidently something that God wants us to really get, isn't it? And of course, friends, that's because a firm grip on God's sovereignty is vital for a suffering church, isn't it? Friends, so often, the first thing we're tempted to think when life goes wrong is whether God has abdicated his throne. Where are you, Lord? We cry. But friends, while it may look sometimes as though evil is triumphing in certain parts of the world and God's people are facing huge suffering, you know, maybe in countries like Iran where Sahar it was, was forced to flee from or, or North Korea or Iran or Yemen or Afghanistan or Sudan and countless others, whilst it may also appear that cultural Christianity in our secular West is in decline too. Did you know, I found this out this week, that in France there are more registered mediums than there are pastors. Did you know that? But does that mean that God has lost his grip on the throne of heaven? No, of course it doesn't. The mystery of God, his, his plan to both save and judge in Christ, it will be, revealed, it will be fulfilled. And friends, this, this message gets repeated a whole lot more in this book. And that can only be, can't it? Because the risen and reigning Lord Jesus, who gave John these messages for us, wants us to grasp that truth and live in the light of it friends we need this truth and and not just so that we will see god's uh, sovereignty over the big picture you know of the world and and the church but so that we will see his sovereignty over our lives as well that everything that happens to us he both knows about and is ultimately in charge over you see that illness that accident that death, the the job loss, 
that problem with the child, that struggle in the relationship, and all the joys and delights as well. He knows it all, and he's in charge. And I ask you, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that nothing will happen to you this week or any week, good thing or bad thing, that God is not allowing and is in charge of? And by really believe it, I mean believe it such that it will fill you with confidence that God will use whatever you face for his good and perfect plans. So that we can really trust him. Because that's what John wants to tell us here in this chapter. He wants us to know the confidence we have. Because God is on the throne. Because he is sovereign. So what should we be doing and expecting as God's people during these last days? Well, the first thing John shows us is the confidence we have. But the second thing he shows us, look, is the task that we perform. Uh, And you can see this in the first six verses of chapter 11. Because in these days between Christ's resurrection and his return, the the church has a job to do. Right? And that job is to proclaim the gospel. Now... um, This chapter 11, you might have seen as we read it, John's using a lot of of symbolism, a lot of both Old Testament and actually some New Testament symbolism as well to make his point. So this is where we we, we especially need to remember the, the type of literature we have here and that we're not meant to understand it in a kind of literal or literalistic sense, but we're supposed to grasp the symbolism that he's using. And you'll see in verse 1 that John is given a measuring stick and told to measure God's temple. Okay, and the imagery here is drawn from the prophet Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel 40, uh, where the prophet sees a man measuring out a new temple for God. That's the imagery here. But, but Ezekiel's temple, it was never a literal one. It was never built because it was a symbol of God's people, God's people in the new creation which is why a lot of the imagery from Ezekiel crops up again in chapters 21 and 22, which describe the the new heavens and and the new earth. So that's the imagery that's going on there. You might also know that many places in the New Testament as well, the church, God's people, are described as his temple, aren't they? 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 6, Ephesians 3, 1 Peter uh, as well. It's the same imagery with, with the temple here in Revelation 11. Do you see? The picture is not referring to the physical temple in Jerusalem, right? Remember the genre. This is symbolism, not literalism. And the symbolism here is built on Ezekiel. And it's built on the New Testament generally that it, in that it's referring to God's people, God's church. Do, do, do you see? The picture is that of John being told to measure off and number, as it were, God's people. It's, it's another symbol of, of them being numbered, being marked, for their safety, their security, their their protection. God is measuring off his people because he knows those who are his. It's it's another way of talking about God's people being sealed by the Lamb in in chapter 7, or or of them numbering 144,000, if you remember, in chapter 7. In other words, God knows who are his. He's marked them. He's numbered them off. Nothing can happen to them, spiritually speaking. Which becomes really important... Because when that bit of the symbolism falls into place, that the temple is referring to his church, his people, then we see that these two witnesses in verse 3 represent the church as a prophetic witness to the gospel. 
right? They are going to prophesy to the unbelieving nations, verse 3, whilst also being persecuted for it, being trampled by the unbelieving nations, verse 2. Do do, do you see? And this will happen, verse 2, for 42 months. And 42 months is the same as 1,260 days, uh, also mentioned here, uh, or three and a half years, or what he will go on to call in chapter chapter 12, time, times, and half a time. And and all those numbers, they're referring to the same period of time. John uses them interchangeably to mean the same thing. And and all of the numbers come from the book of Daniel in, in the Old Testament where Daniel prophesied that there would be a period of suffering for for God's people that would last a time, times, and half a time. A time being a year, uh, times therefore being two years, half a time being half a year, so that's three and a half years, or 42 months, or 1,260 days. And and it's clear in the book of uh, Daniel that what he was originally referring to was, was a reign, the reign of a king, a guy called Antiochus Epiphanes IV, you want to write that down in your notes? <laughs> um, he was an evil foreign king who reigned in Jerusalem for three and a half years. And it was the grimmest time of Israel's history. And so that phrase, time, times, and half a time, it became kind of symbolic, a metaphor in Jewish thinking for a period of time in which there would be intense suffering, but a period of time that would come to an end in time, times, and half a time. And John here is picking up that symbolism and he's applying it here to the whole period of these last days between Christ's resurrection and his return. To say that these last days, this whole period, will be a time in which there'll often be intense suffering, but it will come to an end. You see? And what are God's people to do during that time? Well, verse 3, I will give authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy during that period clothed in sackcloth. In other words, they will proclaim the message of the scroll, God's plan of judgment and rescue in Christ, and and, and they will call people to repent, and they'll do it in sackcloth, in, in mourning, because it's a message of judgment to those who reject it. So who then are these two witnesses exactly? Verse 4 says they are synonymous with two olive trees, verse 4, two lampstands, that stand before the Lord of the earth. So he's changing the imagery a bit there, isn't he? As he describes these two witnesses, who, these two witnesses who prophesy as also being like two olive trees and two lampstands. You might remember the language of lampstands from chapter 2, uh, where the lampstands are the churches, of course. Uh, so those called to prophesy, to witness to the gospel, they're not just select individuals, you know, some gifted evangelist or something, but actually all of us as his church have that that task but the language both of of olive trees and of lampstands it originally comes from the book of Zechariah and and John's using that language here to speak about all of God's people witnessing to God in the last days in other words friends all of these images the two witnesses who prophesy the two olive trees the two lampstands they're all symbols of the church preaching the gospel in the last days And if you look at verses 5 and 6, you can see a bit more imagery to show the effect of their preaching. Have a look at verse 5. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. 
they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. I wonder if you recognise the the imagery that's being used there, having power to cause plagues. What does that remind us of? It takes us back to Moses, doesn't it? And the plague sent as judgment on Egypt. Having the power to shut up the sky so that no rain would fall. Well, that takes us back to Elijah, doesn't it? 1 Kings 17, who prophesied the same kind of judgment on on Israel. And, of course, the point here, friends, is not that God is going to literally kind of bring Moses and Isaiah back to, to preach again. But rather they represent what God's church are now called to be doing in the last days. And just as the preaching of Moses and Elijah led to both blessing and judgment, so when the church proclaims the gospel in these last days, well, its preaching brings forth the same. It brings forth blessing to those who will receive it with faith, but also judgment on those who reject it. So friends, that's the, gospel, that's the church's task. The church's task is to proclaim the gospel of God's judgment and salvation in these last days. And that's why we can expect it to involve being trampled on sometimes. We can expect to be persecuted because some people won't like the message. And so they'll take it out on the messengers. So, so I hope you can see some of the details here are a bit tricky, aren't they? Um, but I hope we can understand enough of it to get the main point, which is that John is showing us the task that we perform here, which is that we are to proclaim the gospel to a world that desperately needs it, but often doesn't want to hear it. That's our task. Which, friends, means that churches need to be outward-looking, doesn't it? It means that as individual Christians, we we need to be the same and and kind of shining a light for him in a dark world. You know, whether that's at school or whether it's at college or work or whether it's in the home or at the school gate or in the gym or wherever it is. The task of God's people is to bear witness to his gospel and to be prepared for flack as we do so. It will be costly because sometimes no matter how gentle we are, the message we carry will be received badly. But that's always been the case. Ever since the times of Jesus and his disciples, those who courageously stand for Christ can expect to be persecuted for him. And I think the question for you and me is whether we will stand for Christ. Because the task of the church is to proclaim the gospel in spite of the opposition. Which kind of leads us nicely to verses 7 to 14, where where John, having shown us the the confidence we have, having shown us the task that we perform during these last days, now shows us the suffering we face. Because we might might think it's bad enough having to go through tough times as a Christian now, but actually John speaks in verses 7 to 14 here of actually a much worse, albeit short-lived, time to come. And and again, the details are a bit tricky, but hopefully the main point will be clear enough. Have a look at verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, get that, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. 
and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. So in verse 7, the two witnesses that, that remember, represent the church in its witness to, to the gospel, of course, they're killed. The two witnesses are killed by the beast from the bottomless pit. And we'll see next week that the, pit, that the beast represents Satan and, and does Satan's work. So this seems to be talking about a kind of an intensification, if you like, of Satan's ongoing attack on the church, such that it renders the witness of the church silent, right? They're killed. It makes them seem as though the people of God are defeated. So where does that take place? He talks about the great city in verse 8, which is probably a reference to Jerusalem, where their Lord was crucified, verse 8. But the great city could equally be, have been understood by these readers as, as a reference to Rome, of course. That was the great city of the time. But notice that he refers to it as being symbolically like Sodom and Egypt. And, of course, Sodom and Egypt were both symbols, weren't they, of, of evil and, and opposition to God in the Old Testament. So the point seems to be that this sort of final satanic attack on the church, if you like, is going to take place not simply in one great city, but actually in, in every place where humanity is opposed to, to God and, and his people. In other words, the great city there is ultimately standing for the, the whole of our fallen world. I think. And, and notice in verse 10 that as the attacks on the church intensify such that the church seems defeated... Well, the world rejoices over its demise. Did you pick that up in verse 10? So, so what, what's going on here? I, I, think, I think he's speaking about the very end of time here, I think. A period when the 42 months of verse 2, you know, symbolizing the whole period of the last days, remember, is, is evidently over because the two witnesses, in other words, the church, have finished their witnessing. Verse 7. In other words, by this time... The time for gospel preaching is over, right? The time for salvation is over. This is kind of the very end, if you like, of those last days, just before the Lord returns, uh, and the church is facing a huge intensification of Satan's attack on it that makes it seem as though it's all but defeated. But do you notice that no sooner has it started than it's over? Did, did you see that? Have a look at verse 11. Um, but after three and a half days... A breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Do you see what's happening? After just a very short period of time, symbolized not by three and a half years now, but three and a half days, okay, John is showing us that God will save his church. That's what's happening, isn't it? That at the end of time, God will act in justice to rescue his people and bring judgment on his enemies. In other words, he'll raise up his faithful people, verse 11, and he'll bring his wrath on those who oppose him, verse 13. 
And, and notice, friends, that while people give glory to God on that day, look in verse 13, that is not the worshipful joy of the rescued that's being described there. That is the terrified, begrudging acknowledgement of the unrepentant. So, friends, if we look back in history, we can certainly see times, can't we, when the church has been in this position before, when it's looked, you know, in a particular country or a particular region as though the gospel has been all but snuffed out. You know, I guess recent examples might be uh, the USSR under communism, perhaps, or Afghanistan under the, the, the Taliban. But I think these verses here suggest that those more regional times of Satan's opposition to the church will lead up to a short period of more intense global opposition to come when it may appear that Satan has won. But the message here about that time is that it will be A, for just a short time, and B, that it will be a false victory. And the reason it will be a false victory is that having shown us the confidence we have and the task we perform and the suffering we face... John now tells us finally in verses 15 to 19 that what we are also to expect as God's people in these last days is the victory that we hope for. Okay, and notice what happens in verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. So John gives us a glimpse there, doesn't he, of what will happen at the end of time as the final trumpet is blown, the final whistle on human history. And God reigns fully and finally, and that reign is seen by everyone. And do you see what will happen? Look at verses 17 and 18, because they tell us that God's people will be rewarded and God's wrath will be poured out on his enemies. Have a look at verse 17. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was, sorry, who is and who was, For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the day for the dead to be judged. And for for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both great and small, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. You see, when God takes up his reign fully and finally, verse 17, it will mean that his people are rewarded for their faithfulness, verse 18. In in other words, um, all that uncertainty about the survival of the church, well, that will all be laid to rest for good in a moment. Because the kingdom of the world will have become the kingdom of our Lord. See, friends, it may appear to us that everything is lost. That there might be times in our lives when we think things are lost to us and lost to God's church. Times when the gospel is opposed. Times when the church is weak. Times when our own lives feel hard and we feel overwhelmed by sin. But friend, take a look at what's coming. Take a look at what he'll do one day. You know, however weak and sinful you feel, however small God's people appear to be, remember, in Christ we have the victory. That's what's coming. We cannot lose. Satan is a defeated enemy. Yes, he'll, he'll have a tiny moment of apparent glory one day. But it'll be snatched away as soon as it's given. So friends, we should never imagine that God's church can simply be snuffed out. Because bringing hope out of despair 
bringing victory out of apparent defeat, bringing life out of death. Well, that's what he does, isn't it? So friends, take heart from these chapters. We can have great confidence because God is in charge. We must press on in proclaiming the gospel because that's our task. Yes, we must be prepared for suffering because that's our lot. No servant is greater than his master. But we can look ahead with expectant hope because the victory is ours in Christ. As Jesus puts it, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Shall we pray? Let's pray. Father, our prayer uh, this morning as we uh, come away from these chapters is that you would give us confidence in your sovereignty, that you would keep us pressing on in our gospel task, that you would give us strength and courage to proclaim you regardless of the cost. And that you would encourage us that the victory is ours in Christ. All of these things we pray in Jesus' name.